The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. I want to start off today by talking about a colossus, I think, of Irish politics, John Bruton, who has died over the last couple of days. Um, He was leader of Fine Gael. He was a Taoiseach for a while, and he was um, the EU's ambassador to the United States, amongst a lot of other things. Um, I felt very saddened by it because um, I, over the years, had come across John Bruton quite a lot, uh, was always impressed with him, didn't always agree with him. And I remember on several occasions being up in the Institute of European Affairs uh, back in the 90s and the 2000s, particularly in the run up to the creation of the single European currency. And uh, I would have had fundamental differences of opinion with John Bruton. I remember one particular conference the two of us spoke at and we fundamentally disagreed with each other. I was sort of young and impetuous, believing that if somebody disagreed with you, they were the enemy and so on. But I remember uh, having a coffee with him afterwards and um, there was no sense whatsoever of any animosity from Bruton over the fact that you disagreed with him. He was really interested in hearing what your views were and he dispelled nothing. So uh, that, I think, is a measure, one of the many measures of the man. So I'm saddened by it. Very, very, you know, I think, influential politician in Irish political circles. And of course, he also had a significant part to play in the whole Northern Ireland peace process because he was deeply involved in that whole process throughout his political career and afterwards. And... um, you know, he got a reputation among some people as being very much of the unionist tradition. I certainly never saw that. I saw him as being a very realistic individual who recognised the intricacies of Northern Ireland politics. And uh, sad. I think the world is sadder for his loss. Did you come across him, Chris? Yeah, on a, on a couple of occasions, uh, only very peripherally uh, at a distance. Uh, unlike you, I never... I never got to speak to him in, in, at length about anything, um, but I recognise uh, a politician who was very smart, very dedicated, uh, his own man in the sense that he had his views that often didn't accord with a lot of his colleagues, actually, and wasn't a tribal politician in the way that many of the world. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Politicians these days, these days are. Uh, one of the things I often remark about politics these days, Jim, as you, as you know, is, is the, the extent to which you join the tribe and then you take your views from the tribe. You don't ever think things through. One of the reasons why I've never belonged to a political party is that I often take each policy choice, each trade-off, each decision as it comes on its own merits. And you often find yourself on one side of the political divide one day and on the other side the next. And therefore, it becomes impossible if you are policy-oriented to be uh, particularly tribal Um and which is why I would make a hopeless politician, and I suspect you would as well, Jim. To be honest, I know you take things on their merits as well. Um, maybe that maybe that's a conceit. Maybe we're as tribal as anybody else. But uh, I, I I sense a kindred spirit in in John Bruton in that he he tried to think things through in a way that many modern politicians do not. So rest in peace, John Bruton. He was Taoiseach over a coalition government, which was. Kind of unusual back in the in the day, but he it was a coalition with democratic left. So he went into government with people that ideologically, uh, I don't think he would have been very comfortable with people like Crunchius de Rossa, Pat Rabbit at the time. But um, I think he really bought into that coalition government, and actually, um, I think he came, well. Sorry, I know he came to deeply um, appreciate. Um, maybe admire is too strong a word, but certainly appreciate and understand the perspective of people like Francis Ross and Pat Rabbit. And he actually generated a pretty uh, strong and stable government at a time when the economic backdrop was very, very difficult. Um, I think the thing that John Bruton will be remembered by many is the famous budget when as Minister for Finance he introduced VAT on children's shoes and um, the government fell on that budget. And the popular narrative out there is that it was the VAT on shoes that actually brought down that government. But the state papers that have been released and other memoirs that have been written, uh, particularly by people like the late Morris O'Connell, who was Secretary General in the Department of Finance and was then Governor of the Central Bank, uh, but a, a lot of the, the narrative later was explaining that actually uh, what brought down that government wasn't VAT on shoes, it, children's shoes. It was actually a two pence increase in the price of a pint of beer. Um, a couple of independents, um, Dublin Bay Loftus being one, I can't remember who the other was, um, actually voted against that measure in the budget. And that was the first measure in that budget, Budget 82, that was voted on, it was uh, defeated. And Gareth Fitzgerald at that stage decided it'd be impossible to get the rest of the budget through. So he dissolved the government at that stage. Um, so it, it wasn't really driven by the vat and choose thing, which, you know, everybody still throws at John Bruton. Uh, but anyway, that's the myth. You know, as you say, may he rest in peace. Um, a good man, I think. Uh, sorry, I know, actually. Chris, I just wanted to... Uh, briefly discuss the exchequer returns. We got the first month's 
data from the Department of Finance yesterday, and um, I would never jump to any conclusions based on a single month's data, particularly a month like January, when you traditionally and typically get that post-Christmas uh, bit of a hangover. But um, surplus of $2.3 billion was recorded, total tax revenues of $7.8 billion, up 4.8%. Income tax up 2.9%, VAT up 4%, and corporation tax up by 13.3%. The corporation tax piece I would totally ignore because the payments um, in January are absolutely tiny. And that 13.3% increase is equivalent to 7 million euro. So a tiny amount of money. But the income tax and the VAT pieces are interesting. Uh, the Department of Finance. Uh, try to explain and frankly confuse me a little bit about some technicalities with the VAT take um, this time, which underestimated the year-on-year -year growth. And th they were saying that the underlying rate of growth is 7%, not 4%. But anyway, uh, be it 4% or 7%, it still is indicative of a reasonable level of activity on the consumer side of the economy. And of course, as I've often spoken about, car sales uh, were pretty strong last year. And, you know, that made a significant contribution to uh, the VAT take. Uh, the other point is that in January, gross voters total government expenditure was up a whopping 16.6%. Jim, can I ask you a question? You can, Chris, yeah. What does voted mean? Uh, it means that the, the, doll, the doll votes through this expenditure. Is no. there such a thing as non-voted expenditure? Uh, there is indeed, yeah. It's, and it's what's stuff that? that? It's stuff that doesn't go through the doll as such. It's 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 a technical way of implementing spending. There's voted and non-voted. Because I, I see, you know, in in the Irish Times today and other outlets that that phraseology used, voted expenditure was up by X and all the rest of it. But none none of these commentators or analysts or journalists ever explain what that is and i think it would be useful sometimes for people to actually know what it was that they were reading about and i think when you put jargon like that into newspaper articles it confuses rather than clarifies because it, it's it's arcane jargon isn't it uh well it well it is but it, but it does explain spending that actually uh goes through the dull process and i guess is voted for literally if expenditure isn't going through the doyle process is, is that not very undemocratic yeah, but there's, there's elements of non-voted expenditure, other things that does not have to go through the doll process. It's not democratic, it's the system. Um, it's always been like this, as far as I know. Um, but the voted piece is by far uh, the most significant piece. And the current piece was up 14.3%. Capital was up 56.4%. And I was interested in a few government officials were coming out saying that uh, the strong growth in capital spending in January was indicative of the sort of capital expenditure the government is engaging in and 56.4% year-on-year growth does actually sound pretty impressive, but you're talking about um, 600 million in total spent on capital. So it's it's a tiny part of the overall budget. But um, So that's it, Chris. The tax revenue buoyancy has continued into the first month of the year. Uh, the year-on-year -year growth rates are by and large starting to slow down i think there are no surprises there because in 22 and again in 2023 uh you know we got phenomenally strong growth in 
tax revenues and with a slowdown in the economy, which is obviously happening, you know, it'd be very difficult to sustain those sorts of growth rates. So I think based on January, one month's data wouldn't get carried away about it because one can't jump to any conclusions based on just a month's data. But it is indicative, I think, of an economy that has maintained a reasonable level of economic momentum in the early weeks of the year. And that certainly is consistent with my anecdotal view of what's happening out there. And in fact, car sales in January were up by over 15%. In the reports of the checker returns, we often get that phrase, voted expenditure. We also get, but didn't yesterday, and I'm wondering if this is a change, and you, you can enlighten me, is that the numbers that are actually presented, tax revenues X, spending Y, often come accompanied with the phrase, were above or below profile. Um, that word seems to have disappeared. My understanding of the word profile in the past is that that, that referred to the department's forecasts. Is that right? Yeah, um, I'm not sure the department has done it yet. It may be on the website, but I think it's what they do is at the beginning, at some stage early in the year, they outline what they expect to collect, collect in the various categories of taxation month by month over the year. And then when the data come out, they will say, okay, there was a year-on-year growth rate of X and it was X million or percent above or below what the department was expecting. And they use the word profile when they really mean forecast. Uh, exactly, they do. Indeed. Okay, yeah, yeah. more jargon designed to confuse rather yes, than clarify, indeed. I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing they did was that they tried to strip out some weird things that happened to VAT last year and the year yeah. before, I think, yeah. in order to That's try... That's what and... I was saying. That was the technical difference, which I didn't fully understand what they were getting at. But they were trying to claim, as I understand it, the VAT was up about 7% underlying. Is yeah, that that's right, Chris. 4% was the headline rate reported. And they said the underlying growth rate was around 7%. And the Irish Times, in its report, said that you couldn't infer anything from that about whether or not that was due to inflation or real growth in consumer spending. And that doesn't sound right to me. Does it sound right to you? Sorry, could you explain that? The Irish Times said that you, when you see a, a change in VAT, it's it's really difficult, to, next to impossible, it, it was suggesting to split that out between uh, the rise in revenues that occurred simply because prices went up because of inflation. We live in inflationary times. When the price of a vatted good goes up, then the vat paid goes up as well but the actual amount of the good bought the volume is is unchanged or it could be that people are buying more goods and in which case VAT goes up because of both the volume increase and the inflation increase and the the report was saying you can't separate the two i can understand why it would be tricky to split out the two but it's not impossible is it at least to make a first approximation no it's 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 not chris and i mean Okay, you could say that one of the significant drivers of VAT would be retail sales, which is less than 40% of consumer spending. It's spending on goods, including cars. And and we know from CSO data last year, and I think I spoke about this in a podcast last week, that we got value and volume growth in retail sales last year. Um, Value was, not surprisingly, Um, significantly stronger than the volume because of inflation. But uh, if you look at those retail sales data, you can certainly conclude uh, that some of the buoyancy we're seeing in VAT is due to a real increase as well as a nominal increase in economic activity. 
Yeah, because if you were doing back of the fag packet calculations, acknowledging the difficulties, in order to be able to say, well, the rise in VAT revenues was all down to inflation or it was all down to consumer spending growth or it was a bit of both, you can make some heroic assumptions and they involve, you know, the proportion of consumers expenditure that is subject to VAT and not subject to VAT, uh, assume caterus paribus, as we economists like to say, other things being equal, assume that consumers spending patterns don't change, which of course they do. Um, but 7% VAT growth looks to me to be a combination of both inflation and real growth. And you're saying that inflation is probably more at work than real growth. But I would say it's probably going to be something like 4 or 5% inflation and 2 or 3% real growth. Does that sound about right to you? It does, yeah. It does indeed. Absolutely. Yeah, that's not, I don't want to labor this point. It's, it's very geeky. I just think that the Irish Times got this one a little bit wrong, shall we yeah. say. Anyway, any more numbers, Jim? Well, last Friday, we had the US employment report and uh, always a big number, but particularly in the context of the current debate that's going on about the health or otherwise of the US economy. Um, The January figure showed an increase of 353,000 jobs, which was well above what the market had expected. And indeed, the December increase was revised up significantly to 333,000 January was the biggest rise in a year. Um, The revisions for the whole of 2023 added an extra 359,000 jobs created last year uh, compared to the first estimate. And in total, in 2023, the US economy generated just over three, excuse me, three million jobs. Okay, Um, an unemployment rate of 3.7%. So that's still describes an incredibly strong labor market you know and we 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 have spoken a lot about the strength of the US economy and we get uh, feedback from some of the people who listen to this podcast basically saying well is the US that strong well based on these economic metrics it certainly is strong the labor market is incredibly strong uh, in the last couple of days we also got the ISM index for the services sector, um, 53.4, well above the 50 cutoff point, the strongest growth in the services sector in four months. So generally, what we are seeing is a picture of a pretty buoyant economy at this juncture. Um, May not make everybody feel great, may not do much to boost the fortunes yet of President Biden, uh, but certainly is indicative of a pretty strong underlying level of economic activity in that economy. Yeah, I've got something that maybe will come as a surprise to you, Jim, but looking at what you've just said about the US economy, looking at the UK of all economies, Mr. Pessimism here about the UK notes that services are accelerating a bit in the UK as well, from a low base, but they are- As are house prices. And I was coming on to that, Jim. Um, uh, house prices are now rising in the UK again. And if I look at other economic indicators around the world, I know I've touched on this before, but I wonder, led by the services sector, which for the West's economies, of course, is by far and away the biggest part of the economy. And in economies like Germany, or Germany in particular, manufacturing is still a very large chunk. That's just not true in the US or the UK. But even in the US, manufacturing is doing okay. But we're talking about services. I wonder, Jim, here's a hypothesis for you. 
is the world economy, just when all the forecasters are looking the other way, is the world economy reaccelerating? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Based on what you described in the UK, there's definitely a modest acceleration, albeit from a very low base. Um, the United States, you know, continues to... Uh, grow at a pretty significant pace. But you'd have to say, looking at the euro area and China, uh, there's still a distinct lack of vibrancy. Uh, over the last couple of days, we also got industrial production data for Germany for December, extremely weak. So uh, I, I think parts of the world are actually accelerating and parts are still pretty turgid. And yeah, maybe the maybe the way the data is is falling is it's that the for some strange reason the English speaking world is gently reaccelerating, perhaps led by the U.S. actually, in a locomotive sort of way, using a very old fashioned economic expression there, and the manufacturing dominated economies such as Germany are still struggling, partly if not mostly because China is still struggling. And there have been suggestions re recently that China is struggling so much now that it's going to have to dump an awful lot of its manufactured goods because they can't sell them domestically. You're going to have to dump them at low prices on the West. And chips, in particular, semiconductors are being mentioned here, but other goods as well. And that China could actually start exporting deflation again to the West in the in sometimes in the ways that it's done in the past. One of the things to continuously keep an eye on is the Chinese stock market, which has been cratering for a, quite a long time now. But the Chinese government has moved to try and prop it up in recent days, and it's had a bit of a bounce. Some people are calling it the classic dead cat bounce. I won't go into why we call it that. It's just too horrible. Um, but they, the Chinese have dismissed their market's regulator. Xi Jinping has said he is taking a direct interest in the stock market. And Chinese government agencies, things like so the Sovereign Wealth Fund and one or two other similar agencies in China, are themselves using their cash to buy Chinese equities. So the Chinese government are worried about the state of their stock market. They're worried about the state of their economy. And I just wonder how far away we are from the Chinese actually coming back and doing what they have so far failed to do this time around, but have done every single time this has happened for the last 30 years. They've stimulated their economy. So I wonder. But as I say, I do think that something interesting is going on in the States. Um, and I think it adds up to that thing that we talked about before, which is that the Fed's going to be on hold now for a little while and that that's going to lead to a stronger dollar 
and that Europe is going to be left trailing in the United States wake. And one of the reasons why I think Europe is going to trail the United States is that we had an extraordinary interview with Isabel Schnabel, I think her name is, in the FT today, in which I'm going to paraphrase slightly and exaggerate to make my point, which she throws up her hands in horror, Jim, at the idea that the European economy could start growing again, and said as a result of that horror that she has of the European economy growing again, that they shouldn't cut interest rates. Now, I think that this um, exaggerated picture of the European Central Bank, it tells you all you need to know, which is that they are going to keep interest rates in the way that we've described so often as too high for too long. And that European policymakers, for some weird reason, are just allergic to economic growth and they're not just not going to allow any. Do you think that's an exaggerated um, depiction of what um, this particular central banker had to say? No, it's not, Chris. Actually, it's an extraordinary interview and it, it appears to fly totally in the face of all the economic evidence. Um, I, I, I think it's bizarre interview but I, I guess it is consistent with I think what I was saying in a recent podcast certainly what I wrote about in the piece I put up on our Substack site over the last couple of days about interest rates I felt given the very conservative nature of the European Central Bank rate cuts would probably come in the second half rather than the first half of the year and uh, what she was saying in that interview I guess is consistent with that view but it's a very conservative view and it is failing to recognize just how weak the eurozone economy is at the moment. Um, okay, some of the peripheral countries like Spain, Portugal are doing well, but the biggies like France, Germany, the Netherlands, struggling big time at the moment. So it's a, it's a strange attitude to have, but I guess nothing should surprise us about the European Central Bank. Just one small thing I want to mention before we move on to a bit, bit of politics, Jim is that the UK electricity price, the all-important energy price that most of us consume one way or another, um, and the and I know that you, you import a lot of your electricity from the UK, or at least some of it anyway, and the, uh, the wholesale price, the, the, the one-day-ahead price, which is not the only important price, but it is an important price, is now at about 10% of the level that it reached at the peak of the energy crisis. So that means that we can look forward to lower energy bills. Um, uh, they will fall in April in the UK by double-digit percentage, probably. We're not, we don't know yet, but that does seem very likely. Um, and we've the natural gas price, which is the determinant of that electricity price at the end of the day, is also at its recent lows. The oil price is being well-behaved. So I think we're going to continue to get good news on inflation, particularly by the energy sector and i think that the european central bank this time next year is going to be wrestling with a problem of its own making which is inflation well below target but the peculiar thing about that central bank of course is that it never ever worries about inflation below target never does anything about it does it no it does so, not well, enough about that jim um i don't know whether you've got any more economic pure economic indicator stuff to talk about before i witter on about my um political geopolitical thing that i keep promising to do yeah, Chris, there's, there's a couple of things I'd just like to mention. Um, I, I was reading a piece here in Ireland over the last couple of days where there were reports about the tech sector here struggling to hire upward pressure on wages due to um, staff shortages. 
And then in the United States, um, it is estimated that in the first month of the year, another 32,000 jobs have been lost in the tech sector based on announcements, Snap, uh, letting Snapchat allowing 10% of its workforce go, OKTA letting 7% of its workforce go. And this comes on top of a pretty difficult year for the tech sector globally. You know, we saw a lot of job layoffs from companies like Amazon, Salesforce, Facebook, or Meta, uh, and and the list goes on. Uh, But in 2023, the rationale for those tech job layoffs was fears about a recession that actually never materialized. Um, a pullback from the pandemic hiring activists, investors um, forcing, you know, cost cutting. And also we saw reallocation of resources within companies towards AI. But um, it got me thinking about uh, this whole creed of downsizing. Um, You know, there has been uh, an ethos or a business creed that has evolved over time, basically saying that, Periodic downsizing is 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 absolutely necessary and that it's beneficial Um, and that that has been a key driver and shareholder or activist investors have obviously been big drivers of that because the creed of shareholder value is really important. But there's that there is, I think, a growing body of opinion now saying that these periodic job layoffs and downsizing are actually very corrosive and that the effects last last for some years in a negative sense. Uh, But anyway, it's um, reflecting what's happening in the tech sector in the States at the moment. Um, It's it's something I'd like to discuss with you at some stage. Perhaps we don't have time today, but this whole notion of shareholder value and activist investors and so on driving cost-cutting. I think cost-cutting is to blame for a lot of are economic and, and societal ills, actually. There are too many companies run by people who only believe that cost-cutting is, is, the, is the only way uh, that they can survive in their jobs, can get rewarded via their bonuses. And cost-cutting for efficiency reasons, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you do the old cliched thing of cutting into muscle and then cutting into bone, the fabric of the organization starts to fall apart. And I think the pendulum has swung in many industries, in many firms, far too far in that direction. And you can see that in the way in which a lot of re- consumer-facing businesses, particularly utilities and banks and other financial institutions, have cut costs. Try phoning a bank or a utility company these days. Try getting anything remotely resembling customer service. I've gone on about this before, but I do think that this cost-cutting thing is responsible for that. And it doesn't lead to shareholder value. It might lead to a sugar high in terms of a quarterly result. If you've slashed your costs, your profits go up. But if you damage the fabric of your business, long-term shareholder value is actually destroyed rather than created. But it is that uh, knife edge of being able to say we're being efficient, we're keeping costs down to a minimum, or actually cutting costs below the minimum. Once you do that, you get yourselves into trouble. And I think many companies, not all, but many companies are are guilty of this. But yes, it, it warrants bigger discussion. Jim, I want to talk about a different kind of dysfunction rather than corporate dysfunction, something that I touched on in the last podcast about Washington. And I talked about dysfunction there, dysfunction on steroids, and I you know, couldn't believe how bad it has got. Well, Jim, it's got even worse. And I just want to briefly quote from today's New York Times, which 
this is something I don't often say about the New York Times. My jaw dropped when I read this article. The headline is bad enough. Dysfunction reigns in Congress as GOP defeats multiply. GOP, for those readers not uh, paying much attention to American politics, stands for Grand Old Party, which is another name for the Republican Party. God help it, the party of Lincoln, believe it or not. In a day of chaos in the Capitol, Republicans failed to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, lost a vote to speed aid to Israel, and cheered the demise of a border deal they had demanded. So they are getting what they asked for and turning around and saying no thanks. They're trying to impeach public officials because they disagree with the policy which has never happened before in the history of the United States. Impeaching people like this Homeland Security boss um, has never been done before and is very, very dangerous. And I'll just read the opening paragraph. Republicans in Congress suffered a humiliating series of setbacks on Tuesday on critical elements of their agenda, turning the Capitol into a den of dysfunction that has left several major issues, including U.S. military aid to Ukraine, and Israel in limbo amid political feuding. Republicans in the Senate torpedoed a border deal they had demanded. The bid by their counterparts in the House to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary collapsed amid Republican defections. This speaks to a number of themes. The first one, of course, is the dysfunction that I mentioned. I've, I've been watching the states for decades, and I have never seen anything like this ever. Similar, but never on this scale. And the second thing is the lesson it teaches you about populists is that they can't run a bath, let alone a country. And it, it is sometimes said that fascists, at least they make the trains run on time. History, actually, if you know your history, you'll know that the fascists didn't make the trains run on time. They are useless at running anything. And often these days, I would substitute the term fascist or neo-fascist for populist. And so it is here in the UK We've had this week um, the the death throes, I think, or, or the echoes from beyond the grave of the populists here in the UK with a meeting called uh, the Popular Conservatives, spearheaded by people like Liz Truss, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and the usual list of characters, saying that the Conservative Party needs to be more conservative, as if they haven't actually been in power for the last 14 years. And some of the stuff they're coming out with is as ridiculous as some of the stuff that the Republicans are up to in the United States, with one big difference is that the influence and power of these populists here in the UK, interestingly, is waning. It's it's shrinking, uh, unlike that in the United States where it's making a comeback fire Donald Trump, an interesting divergence. People here in the UK I think, are just starting to say we've had eight years of this populist nonsense, essentially in the guise of Brexit and everything that came with it, including our politicians, our Brexiteering politicians. And we're saying here in the UK, we've had enough of this chaos. You, you lot can clear off. Of course, that's not being said elsewhere, particularly the United States, but also countries in Eastern Europe, perhaps even France and Germany. So I think there's an interesting gap opening up between the UK and the rest. It's a, another expression of optimism about the UK that I'm suggesting. But the situation in Washington, going back to where I started, it is absolutely nuts. And it's not just the New York Times that have noticed. It's in all mainstream publications. I want to talk briefly about an article by Edward Luce, who has a wonderful line in it, and he refers back to Harry Truman experiencing something similar to what Biden is experiencing 
today. And he says, um, Republicans are blocking steps that they urgently demanded. To enact them would show the government works and America's existential border crisis can be fixed, which would harm Donald Trump's case for the presidency. They will not take yes for an answer. I mean, how mad is that, Jim? How mad is that? Ah, it's not. It's it's absolutely not, Chris. Uh, uh, but it, U.S. politics at the moment is just totally depressing. Actually, uh, the reference Biden made to a conversation he had with Francois Mitterrand um, in yeah, recent weeks—that was weeks. sad, wasn't it? Yeah, it's very sad. Absolutely, it just uh, it doesn't bode well. Actually, and uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be fearful that all of this stuff is just feeding into Trump. And Trumpism. I know we um, have some American listeners, Jim, so I invite yeah. any of them to comment on what I've said and tell me where I'm getting it wrong. Um, and indeed, just more generally, tell us what you think about the state of your country. Um, I'd be very interested to hear from our American audience. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Chris, we, we um, ended the, pod- the last podcast talking about farmers and the situation there. And um, I was intrigued in the last 24 hours, Ursula von der Leyen um, withdrew the legislation they're trying to, the European Parliament's trying to push through on pesticides and the use of pesticides. And that is in response to uh, pressure from farmers around Europe, including the IFA here in this country, uh, to roll back on the that legislation, reducing the use of pesticides. Um, and this is a political is a recognition of the political reality of just how powerful farmers are across Europe. And there is a narrative now which is difficult to disagree with that the European elections in June will be very heavily influenced by the demands of farmers and they will be at the heart of the election process. Um, the Greens are urging all sorts of action on the environmental front, but um we are seeing Eurosceptic parties who are opposed to those sorts of policies becoming more powerful. And after June, we could well see, we probably will see for the first time, uh, the right having a majority in the European Parliament. So I would kind of worry about the future of democratic process politics at an EU level as well. I think that the message that populists can't actually get anything done will eventually get through, because I see it getting through here in the UK, and a lot of people are now realising that this populism that they voted for back in 2016 is has yielded eight years of political, economic and social chaos. And people don't like that. They can take so much of it, but at the end of the day, people want to get on with their lives rather than observing a circus going on in, in their governments. The Roman emperors used to say that if you provided Joe Public with bread and circuses, uh, everything would be all right. Uh, we've supplied the circus, but there is no bread. And and that's the problem, that the chaos has not led to any material increase in the well-being of citizens. And that sooner or later, the pendulum is going to start swinging back and people will realise that if you vote for populists, you vote for chaos, you vote for nothing getting done. And you vote for an awful lot of things going backwards. And I think that's happening in a small way in the UK. Uh, a lot of countries haven't learned that lesson yet. If you if you in Ireland elect your populist party, I think you will experience something similar. Um, but I'm going to 
end my little spiel today by expressing a note of optimism. Having seen the pendulum start to swing back in the UK, I think the populist wave, maybe it hasn't crested yet around the world, but one day it will. Yeah, what I'm really looking forward to, Chris, over the next 12 months is the uh, the Sinn Féin policy platform, you know, to find out what do they really stand for, not what they stand against. And I, and I think there'll be a lot of populism showing up there as well. Well, let's wait and subject that to our normal analysis, Jim. Thanks. Indeed. It's been another great conversation. Speak to you next time. Thank you, Chris. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 